We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Well, today I'm so excited to be joined by Ricochet founder Rob Long. Rob, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. Uh, happy to be here. I'm kind of surprised we've never have you, had you on before. Um, it's it's, <laughs> it's extremely exciting for you. I think you might be I've our been first... shadow banned. I You've guess that's sh- what we're supposed to say. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you might be our first Golden Globe nominated guest on Federalist Radio. Well, that's ridiculous. You should. There's so many. Actually, I don't know. I don't know how many there would be that you'd want to have on the Federalist. But pretty much everybody at some point has a Golden Globe. So um, <laughs> I, this year, I think they didn't have them or they did. I can't remember what they did this year. That's how bad. <laughs> Show business has gotten. We don't even know which awards have been given out. They actually announced the awards over Twitter. <laughs> That's, that is actually what happened. That's right. That's right. I, I, you know, I, my rule is I do not pay attention to any awards shows where I am not nominated. That's my theory. I don't watch them. I don't go. I if I'm if I'm not I don't have any skin in the game. If I can walk away with something, then you know uh, I'll just I got other stuff to do. Yeah, which I'm, I'm sure I'm not proud of, but it, it is in fact the truth. <laughs> It's entirely fair. Uh, Rob, so we, I want to talk about something you guys are doing at Ricochet, which I think is very exciting. Uh, but before we get into that, can you tell us for, for people, I'm, I know many of our listeners are very familiar with your work, for people who may not be, can you tell us a little bit about the arc of your career and, and how you ended up where you are now? Well, I mean, <laughs> this is like, like the arc, the, how you ended up down down to the other end of the arc. Well, I mean, I started, I was, just, I was a, you know, college student in the 80s and I didn't know what I was going to do and someone said you should go to LA and go to film school uh which I did and thank god they said that and not I don't know what else like you should move to you know Budapest or something <laughs> um and so then I moved to uh then I went to LA went to film school um after college uh for only about I mean it's a two-year thing in screenwriting at UCLA and I only last about a I don't know, nine months. And then I got a job. Uh, I was working with a friend of mine. We got a job, staff writers on the then huge hit show, Cheers, which was uh, the number one show at the time. It was huge. Like 25 million people watching it every week. Um, I have to say that now because the, the young people either say, oh, I think I've seen that show on Netflix, or they say even something even more cruel, which is, oh, it was my grandparents' favorite show, which I have to hear a lot. Uh, I was young when I started, just so you know, I was 24. So like, I'm, you know, I'm not ancient. I was, uh, and the show had already been going on for a while. So we, uh, we worked there for a while and, uh, and then ended up being uh, co-executive producers of the show the last season. So you just kind of, you work, work your way up the ranks. And since then I've been writing shows and getting shows on and having them canceled and getting shows on, having them canceled. In the meantime, doing a lot of, um, uh, you know, political journalism, I guess, political cultural writing, um, been a contributing editor at National Review and had a column at Abu Dhabi and uh, wrote a couple books. Wrote, wrote actually, I think technically three books. Uh, and um, and then co-founded with my friend Peter Robinson, who was a um, uh, Hoover uh, at the Hoover Institution and um, most famously sort of the, the a former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. He uh, Peter Robinson wrote the great uh, Berlin Wall speech that people often credit rightly with having something to do with ending the Cold War. Um, uh, and so he and I just started this thing called Ricochet. We, just, the, we started it a, a while ago because we thought it, we needed a place for the center right to sort of coalesce and have a conversation with each other um, uh, in, in a very polite space. Right. So we, we, we just, you know, Twitter is just, just a swamp. We thought, well, what if you just you, you have to join the club, Ricochet, you have to pay a little bit, just a tiny amount every month. 
Uh, and you know, our theory was is free market conservatives that if you if you have skin in the game, right? If you pay a little, uh, you if it's your club, you don't you know write obscenities on the wall essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that has really worked. Um, it's been tested a bunch of times in terms of just civility uh, with a couple of hot button things. Um, but essentially it works that if you, you know, if you have ownership of something, you, you tend to care about it it's more about it than you care about streaming windows. Yeah, yeah exactly, like, right. Yeah. exactly right. <laughs> okay. So I think the, the concept is fascinating. You guys, I think we're also pretty ahead of the curve, you know, before this was even before Twitter became the fever yeah. swamp that it is. Um, and you have a program now where college students for free can be members and they can write on uh, the platform and they can converse with other people and they can sort of see what uh, high profile folks are saying. And then what other members of the community are saying. I think it's really interesting that this was a project that came um, from someone who was in Hollywood for a long time. Um, and you're New York based now, right? Yes. It's sort of in atmospheres where dialogue is, is maybe uh, harder to have or has long been harder to have. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but just that, it, you know, you're, you're isolated as somebody who might be right of center in those environments that tend to be very liberal. Um, and it seems like our whole world has become that way uh, over the course of like the last 10 years. Right. 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 I know it has. I, I'm, uh... You know, I always say that people people would ask about, you know, what's it like to, you know, have your views and be in politics? I mean, being in, in Hollywood. And I would always say, well, you know, I mean, I've, I found people in Hollywood that I work with and I work with some of the biggest liberals there were um, incredibly generous and thoughtful and, 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 and curious, like curious. I mean, how people would take me out to dinner to ask me questions. Like, oh, tell me about this. You know, they were fascinated. Um, you know, maybe tr maybe the Trump issue toxified it a little bit. Just in general, because he, he he sort of you know better for worse he toxified everything, um, but uh, I'm not. Sh I mean, I still I still think it's true that Hollywood is a, a more liberal. I mean, I mean more open, uh, tolerant, um, and um, uh, I guess free thinking place than any United States university. I mean, I would rather be myself working in Hollywood, pitching to people who work in Hollywood, than be. Um, teaching English literature at a, at a college. I you just, you just, you're just not allowed to do it. I mean, and, and, and that's, I think that was the impetus for us for, for starting this. We thought like, you know, all these, you know, part of it's going to be, it'll be fun for the old people to see the young people be smart. It'll be, I think it'd be great for our members to maybe get schooled a little bit um, mm. from younger people and vice versa. Um, I think it'll be interesting and juicy for us to hear the crazy stories that we know are true that we only kind of hear about once a week through Twitter about what's going on on campuses. But I think also it's useful for students to know that um, that there's a huge world out there and that world is not an, a huge air, a huge range of opinion and, and thought and belief and political alignment and and. 80%, 90% of those viewpoints are not represented. Uh, the college that they're probably paying, their parents are paying $50,000 a year for. So, I mean, <laughs> for us, it seems like kind of, it's a win-win, right? Everyone, we want every, the, the whole point of Ricochet is to be in conversation, right, to, with people. And one of the things we felt, um, we really discovered is that people, you know, around the country, when they, or around, we have worldwide members, but when they, when they tell you their opinion, it's sort of interesting, right? But like everybody's got an opinion. Like I'm not as that interested in your opinion. Uh, 
But when you tell me about your experience, your life experience, what happened to you, what you know, what I mean, and how that may relate to the politics or the culture of the day, that is so much more valuable. And so when people tell their stories that are personal, um, you know, that I find to be the most compelling reading and the most compelling start and conversation. Uh, and, and what we're hoping is that the, the college students that join will do exactly that. Yeah. Um, and college, of course, as you just mentioned, is another one of those spaces where it's increasingly difficult to uh, just have open dialogue and doesn't really matter if you're on the left or the right. And if you look at polling of college students, it's outrageous how many of them feel uncomfortable just voicing their honest opinion on any given issue. And it's also outrageous when you see on the left, uh, polling finds how many students on the left are, are comfortable with outright censorship or, in fact, uh, demand outright censorship for right. unsafe without it. Um, <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> always right makes me laugh unsafe like give me a break you couldn't be in a more safe place you know american university is the safest place in the world you coddled uh, you, three hots in a cot is like so much it's so great my god i would love to be back in college it's the safest place in the world but anyway sorry where, where did you go to college from i went to yale oh okay <laughs> so i mean you know that's what that that, I mean, that was very safe too but but also just the way they you know i i i I'm, i excuse the students okay i don't blame mm -hmm. the students for being little um uh you know uh, cambodian revolutionaries too much i really don't um look what they look how they grew up mm -hmm. look look who taught them look look what they learned i don't, I, I totally get it yeah um i blame all i must almost I must always blame parents for everything. I can say that as somebody who has no children, people who don't have kids are experts and in child raising. And I can tell you it's the parents fault almost always. Um, but I I'm shocked at the faculty. It's the faculty that drives, drives me crazy. Not the students like the students are always you know, doing crazy, stupid stuff and deciding that they're, I and mean, look at how they dress, right? No, they're, they're, they're not free thinkers. Um, they all dress alike. Right. Um, and this is the same music. The idea that, oh, young people are so, they're not diverse. They do the same thing. Yeah. It's the old people, I think, are, are, are outrageous. It's the, it's the professors and the deans, you know, that, that Yale has more non, more, was it more uh, administrative personnel yeah. than undergraduates? It's unbelievable, the yeah. administrative state and campuses, and a lot of it goes back to like Title IX, but they're just these yeah. massive red tape bureaucracies, um, and that's where a lot of the tuition costs come from, too, and it's that reminds me, I mean, I'm... 100% with you. I mean, these students grew up with every American institution, popular culture, uh, academia, everyone telling them that their interactions, every interaction is fraught with racism, right. bigotry, and everything. Right. So what are they supposed to believe? I mean, they've been completely conditioned by every institution to see the world this way. Um, but again, so you, you've been through Hollywood, through Yale, through all of the... Did you ever see um, the country sort of... And maybe you saw this before anybody else did. I don't know. But did you see this evolution and would you have ever believed that it would have gotten this bad just in terms of our our divisions and our ability to sort of just relate to each other and talk about difficult issues? I never thought it'd get this bad. I, I'm not quite sure I know. First of all, I don't think it's this bad in real normal America. Hmm. I think it's this bad where uh, um, rich, privileged elite people are. Uh, I don't think it's this bad in normal places where people sort of drive around and do jobs for real and then come home and whatever, you know, take their kids to soccer. I don't think that's that this bad. Right. I think it's, it's worse than it probably was, but I don't think it's that bad. People kind of get they, they get they get along. Um, 
it's bad in places where um, there are, you know, let's say the, the reason why academic disputes are so vicious is because the stakes are so small. I mean, it, it, it's bad in places like that where people who are essentially not indolent, but not crucial to the moving of the country or the society forward. We, we can do without a bunch of French literature professors just fine. I'm not saying we should. I love French literature. I think it's great that we have them, but we could do without them. Uh, and so they tend to be not that specifically those people, but that, that tends to be the people who generate the most crazy. I like my, the perfect example of this is like the phrase Latin X Latin X was you must use that fast three, four years. This is the one you have to use. You don't use it. You're terrible and you're a bigot. And now we find that something like 50, 60, 80, 90% of people who define themselves as having Latino or Chicano heritage hate that. Not, not just, don't use the phrase, but actively loathe it. <laughs> people now, you can see the look on the, 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 but the people who've been using it and pushing it and insisting on it have been white progressives the whole time. And now they're like, well, they don't know any normal Latino people. They only know that, you know, the head of the Latino studies person. They don't know anybody <laughs> in their neighborhood. Like I live on West 11th Street in New York City. They, they, they don't know anybody. Like I live across the street from New School, right? It just doesn't, like, they only know themselves. So that is that stratification, I think, which I think Charles Murray wrote about really well. I was um, just going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds exactly yeah. like you're talking it about. Is, I mean, this is, this, this is exactly, this is almost the, the bitter farcical conclusion like there's societal conclusions there, which we see in places like what he, what he called uh, Fishtown. Um, but they're the bitter cultural, almost funny, like too, like sometimes you read these things, you think, wait a minute, this is really like you're not, this is not a joke. This is not some, I mean, I write a satirical column every two weeks for National Review, and it's harder and harder and harder to write columns that make fun of the academic or the progressive left right because it's like well i don't i don't know if this is funny or real right uh and i thought that i feel like is so so i mean i, I guess this is a super long-winded answer to that question i i don't i did not expect this but i i but i should have but we all should have did you watch being um, the ricardos no no but I, I it's on my list i'm supposed to i got it i got it it's it's so i mean I, I would be really curious for your take on it because there's a lot. They spend a little bit of time at table reads and uh, in the writer's yeah. room. But it uh, begins with them talking about how I Love Lucy was shown in I mean, some ridiculous number, like 40 million or it may have even right. been 60 million on average uh, households or total viewers. And it's fascinating to sort of think about because exactly what you're talking about in this, this Charles Murray's Fishtown and the whole uh, point of coming apart Everyone has talked about the so-called Hollywood bubble for a really long time, and there was class and there was ideology sort of wrapped up in that idea. But um, the writers, you know, they used to sit down and sort of say, like, if you have Johnny Carson, who's pulling in 15 million viewers a night, you have to say, what's going to make America laugh? Whereas the Colbert writers right now, they sit down right. every day and say, what's going to make resistance boomers laugh tonight? Um, and I'm curious to your experience sort of writing for a really broad audience of Americans, which is something that just like nobody, except for maybe the writers of like Blue Bloods do anymore. Yes. Ironically, it's not that hard. Um, I mean, you don't have to shut off part of your brain. You have to turn on the part. The problem is if I'm telling you a joke and I think that well, you can see it on the, you can see it sometimes with conservative comedians, right? Um, when I'm telling you a joke and I think that you and I agree on everything, 
I don't have to tell you the whole joke. I can just say, I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've been around with like right wingers and they're just like this. Somebody will say something and someone goes, yeah, like Hillary Clinton. And everybody will laugh. And that's like, that's not really a joke. I mean, I get it, but it's not really a joke. You have to work a little harder. Um, I, I'm, Greg Gutfeld, of course, has got this great hit show on, on Fox News. Uh, and he's an old friend of mine. So I've known him a long time. And whenever I'm on and I'm on like once a month or, you know, every three weeks or something, I always like have a joke with him. I always say when a joke he says doesn't work, I always say, you know, Greg, just cause you're number one, doesn't mean you don't have to try, <laughs> you know, just cause you're so rich, you don't have to try, you have to try. And that is somehow, I think the argument I would make to some of the other on the, well, some of them, all of the others on the left, which is like, you did, you, it isn't that you just you shouldn't talk about politics. It's just that it's not, first of all, it's not funny. Hmm. But second of all, because, because you care about it, because you're trying to make a point. Like, it's never funny that way. But also because, um, you, you know, the reason why Greg is successful is because he because all the others split the audience. Hmm. You know, this half an audience is like left wing and half the audience is right wing. And he, they split the half that's left wing and he gets the rest. That's that's but essentially Fox News in general. Right. That's what Roger Ailes said when he started. It's niche programming, but niche is half the country. Mm. When you do that, okay, that's a very good business model. Um, I, I never had to worry about any of that. I never, I ne it never occurred, certainly when I started on Cheers, it would never occur to us to write about politics. First of all, like we didn't all agree, but also the, uh, the characters didn't all agree. And maybe I guess in another version of a kind of a cheers, those characters would argue about politics at a bar, which I guess people do. Um, and that would be interesting actually. Uh, but in order to argue about politics, you have to have people representing all the different sides. Right. And mm -hmm. that, and I think we, we, I think if you went through somebody actually once made me do this, go through, decide who everybody on cheers voted for. Um, and it was pretty, you know, it's really interesting. Right. But we didn't, we would never write that because why would you then, First of all, the show is making so much money in reruns. Um, we wanted the show to last forever. Mm -hmm. We wanted the show to go on for 50 years and then another 50 years in reruns. And it's hard to, you know, how many, well, you watch I Love Lucy. How many Ike jokes are in I Love Lucy? Zero. Right? Yeah. You know, she's just eating chocolates. I, wrote, I saw an I Love Lucy clip yesterday. I don't know. I'm on TikTok or something. And it was legitimately hilarious. And I have no idea what you, I mean, I know it was black and white in New York city in the fifties, but I have no idea. But I think the interesting thing about, I, I love Lucy and I'm sorry, I'm just rambling, but no, it's great. That I, that I don't know if being the Ricardos takes into consideration. I don't know if they do. I, I suspect because of the provenance of that show that they probably do. And they probably get it wrong is that when I, when Lucy in 1950, when Lucy married Ricky, Desi Arnaz, Cuban band leader, nobody ever, thought of it as an interracial marriage. Mm. Nobody thought, oh my God, how groundbreaking. They did not. They, as they, the, the cute, there was no, they didn't, our, our, our spidey senses, prickly over sensitivity to race did not include people from Cuba who were, they, he was just Spanish. He was Latin, you know, Latin lover. That's what it was. Everybody in South America, that wasn't a different rate. Nobody said great race. Look, what are you talking about? Mm. Like that nobody really, it just didn't exist. And uh, we made it exist, right? We, as a culture decided, not only does it exist, it exists everywhere. And it doesn't never, never doesn't exist. And every single thing you do has to be about that. And um, it's just so strange because I think anybody coming from the, recent past to today would like what would be shocked we're like what are you talking about uh and we you know this is you know, you know read the new york, i read the new york times every single day um 
it's because I like doing the crossword. All right. But <laughs> it's fun sometimes to read the New York Times and see in the business section or in the art section or in the food section how much <laughs> how they can twist everything to be about either race or climate change. Yeah. Or, or, you know, preferably both. Right. That's that's their goal, their goal. Right. That's called and, intersectionality, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Right, great. <laughs> but um, it's pretty amazing. Right. And, and you think, wow, that's. Uh. And, and then they wonder why people are bored. Because mm. you said you've been saying the same thing over and over again. There's right. no news in there. I know what you think. Right. As our listeners know, we are unrepentant followers of celebrity trends and celebrity news at Federalist Radio Hour, but recently I learned something new about an under-the-radar investment that some of the ultra-wealthy have been quietly funneling their money into for generations, and as you can imagine, it really piqued my interest. Famous folks are, of course, known for touting their art collections, but you no longer have to be a coastal elite to invest in one of the oldest asset classes of all time, because Masterworks is making adding art to your portfolio possible. Masterworks gives investors, just like you, access to the asset class that had low correlation to the S&P 500 over the past two decades. Masterworks even achieved a 32% and 31% net return for investors based on the sale of a Banksy and condo piece in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Now, you don't have to be a hedge fund manager to invest in multi-million dollar paintings from iconic artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And Masterworks has results. They've sold two paintings that netted their investors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Even better, our listeners get priority access to their newest offerings. Simply go to masterworks.io slash federalist to get started. That's masterworks.io slash federalist. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Well, and this is so like I've been binging Curb a lot lately, and it's it's mm. kind of interesting because if you take Ted Danson um, and you look at it's now 2022. So a show like Curb, which I mean, is actually pretty old, but it has been made possible by sort of the splintering of yeah. the entertainment economy. And it's fantastic. There are a lot. I mean, there's a glut of horrible shows that have been made possible because of the streaming economy, because they're just sort of throwing money at these mid-budget projects. And it's like, okay, this is like a five right. out of 10 if you, you, you could have made it a lot better. Um, and also the politics and, and all of that. So I guess my question is, is TV getting, I mean, we have so much more TV and then there are some things sort of at the top there, like a Yellowstone that is a, it's really good. But is TV getting worse because of all of this? And is it actually sort of reinforcing because they're made for these different silos, you know, like if you have a Colbert versus a Johnny Carson, Colbert is siloed. Is that also reinforcing our cultural divisions? It's not just sort of catering to them. It seems like it's also kind of reinforcing them. Well, I mean, I think partly that's true. Uh, I mean, the more means more bad <laughs> in addition to more good. So there's more of everything, which is going to this could be more bad. You know, probably a lot more bad than good because good tends to be there's always less good than there is bad. Mm. Um, so th that is definitely the struggle. Uh, I, I think that uh, it, it depends on how you look at it. You know, like I, I there, the way that people that I work with and that, you know, the shows that I'm trying to work on and get on, um, the way they think about it is is definitely in distinct segments. Um, and so like a guy like Dave Chappelle 
who can have a very funny special in which he 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 offends people, some people for some reason, which I, by the way, I find bananas because I think we can go over that later. I mean, I, I I not only think he didn't do anything wrong, I think the you know the trans community should be giving him an award. Like I really do believe he did more for them than anybody, any activist in the trans community has ever done. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's I'm I'm not only I only disagree with them. I think they're I don't, I don't think they're wrong. I think they're backwards. Right. So, but you came and and obviously like it was a huge problem for Netflix and they had to hold on and white knuckle it. Um, and they bravely said, we all said bravely, well, you know, he, we're going to keep you know Dave Chappelle is going to stay on Netflix. Um, but. What that the message they sent was, but nobody else has this topic, right? So essentially, what they did was they hived it off and they said, okay, we now we have a little planet Dave Chappelle, and we'd like him to not talk about this. But if if anyone on Netflix is going to talk honestly and, and with great emotion about topics that are present in the culture today, it'll be Dave Chappelle and nobody else, mm-hmm. right? So. It isn't really censorship in a sense. It's like preemptive buying. Now, that there's two ways that it's going to work out, right? One way is going to be that we are going to have these little silos and everybody's going to go to the little room. And I'll never know what you're watching. You'll never know what I'm watching. Um, the other way is that there's going to be this, I just, which I believe, this explosion of free discussion, free art, free conversation, free comedy somewhere else, some unregulated space. Hmm. Um, and I think that's going to be happening probably on places like TikTok and YouTube and, and, uh, the regulators or whoever, you know, the culture, uh, police will be always fighting a rear guard action to try to stamp it out, but they won't be able to because people like to laugh. And what you laugh about almost always is the thing you're not supposed to laugh at, you know, naughty laughter is the best laughter. So they can't change the neurological map of the human body that the, the map is the map. We laugh at stuff. We can't, we're not supposed to laugh at. So that's always going to be the case. I don't think that's going to change. The second thing I would say is that w- one of the things that has to change, and we have to change it ourselves, right, individually, because our because the people selling to us have no incentive to do this, um, is that we have to stop seeing every single thing in terms of politics. Mm. And not, I don't even mean, I mean, people I know on the right, correctly identify like me like that uh, the left just thinks everything is about you know race or uh climate change ha 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 it's true um but people on the right tend to think that if you voted for hillary clinton or joe biden even uh that's it you're done now i have not i have nothing to say to you um and i find that really that's too bad it's like i think we've made all this stuff too important We've, you know, we've allowed like this crazy, you know, here's here, like I read, I I, I didn't really, <laughs> this full confession. <laughs> I kind of knew that the Voting Rights Act stuff, I, mean, I, I don't know, whatever, whatever they're calling it, um, is, is kind of stupid, right? Yeah. But I didn't know why it was stupid. Yeah. I just kind of generally knew that, look, it's dumb and we're all having to freak out about it for no reason. But then yesterday I thought, oh, I have, to, I have, a, I have like half an hour. Let me find out what it, what I know is in it is in it that I think is stupid. And it comes down to essentially whether you should be allowed, depending on how many days before an election or, or uh, you know, or, and where you should be able to put your ballot. Right. So you should be able to put it in a mailbox or in a box that somebody puts on your front, you know, on your street somewhere. Hmm. And there are people who says, I don't we're not, I don't go for the just the random box in the street somewhere, but I do go for the mailbox. And the difference between the people 
who want you to be able to put your ballot a few days before in any box at all or any designated box uh, that anybody sets up or the U.S. post office. Um, <laughs> that, that is a that is a, what, what, what a tactical argument that probably has a lot. But, I, you know, it's like not we're not all going to we're not all going to die if it's in a mailbox. And right. and then I went and I said, OK, well, so what voter suppression like? Well, the record numbers of voters for the past 20 years. Right. Again, 20 years ago, if you want something in the recent past and said, here's how many people voted. Here's what percentage of eligible voters voted in 2016 and 2018 and 2020. Um, they'd be, oh, my God, this is fantastic. We never expected it. It was supposed to go down. It was, by, by the way, people were predicting by 2020, about 30 percent or 25 percent of eligible voters would vote. Mm. And it's the opposite. It went up, not down. Um, so whatever we're doing, we should do more of it. Like if we if, if voting voter participation is important, we should do what we're doing, not change it. We're doing we're on the right path. Right. But people are only able to see everything in terms of life and death. That like This is going to be the end of everything. And we are, this is the, you know, the, this is, the, you know, look on both sides, right? There's a flight 93 election. My, I'm one of my dear friends. I love her. She's fantastic. She's the one I'm, I'm just funniest, smartest people and Coulter screamed at me about like, well, if we don't do X and Y, we're going to lose America. I'm yeah. like, oh, come on, man. We're going to lose America. I mean, uh, you know, I get it, but no, we're not. Uh, and she's like, you just, you know, she, you know, she's always beating me up, but um <laughs> Okay, so like, but I think that we've all fallen into this weird neurotic behavior, and you can see it in young people, this obsession with climate change that they're not going to live. You know, there's going to be no world for them, which is idiotic. They're all the ones I see wearing nine masks and the plastic shields on their faces because they're, they're like 22 year olds are terrified of COVID for some reason. Like we've all hyped each other up in such a way that I, I just uh, I think that that's work we're going to have to do. Because it, you can make a whole lot of money. It, it's a you can you can really make a lot of money it, it, selling bad news and calamity and apocalypse, uh, both on the movie screen, on the TV screen, on your cable news. Right. And the truth is that everything's going to be fine. That hmm. actually we're all going to be fine, and um, COVID's not going to kill you, and climate change is not going to not going to flood the cities, and we're all going to be fine. It's kind of amazing to hear that from somebody in New York because everybody I know who lives in New York right now feels like the apocalypse. Well, I didn't mean New York. Thing. I didn't mean New York. New York's gonna go. Yeah, I, I, I see it. I hear it. Like, what are you talking about? First of all, most of those people were not around in New York in the late '80s, <laughs> early '90s to see just how bad it could be. Right. I mean, I, I you know, I know young people go, "Oh my God, there's a homeless person on my subway." <laughs> like, yeah, that's were they screaming and defecating? No. Well, that, stay tuned. That happens in 1989. So <laughs> like, it's not I mean, I, I'm not saying it's going to I don't I don't mean the short term and I don't mean it's going to happen automatically, but it's we're all going to be fine. We're, this is a great country and we're, we're all going to be fine hmm. and we're not going to turn into something like a third world, whatever. We're going to figure it out because we do. And as long as we don't you know, start eating the seed corn, um, which I, I believe, unfortunately, I do believe we are doing now by punishing the least risk group in the world for COVID and making them suffer the most draconian regulations for COVID. That, that is a bad thing. That is a thing that, that is a new step for Americans, which is to actively punish young people because old people um, who work on laptops are 
kind of scared and would actually don't mind staying home. Right. You know, that, that, that I feel like is the, the but I, I also believe that young people are, are mean and smart and cruel and young enough that they will punish all the old people for doing that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I cannot wait for that to happen. They're going to exact their vengeance in some uh, yet yeah. unknown way. <laughs> well, I think the way is known, and it's like euthanasia. It's like, <laughs> hey, old people, uh, we we didn't go to school. We missed the ethics class because it was on Zoom and then canceled by you know, the teachers union you love so much. So guess what? You're going to be sitting outside tonight. Uh, and what are the old people going to say? Is like, well, it, it seems unsafe. Yeah, it's pretty unsafe. All right. <laughs> That's what, I mean, actually that's yeah. like scary. That's almost too real. It feels very accurate. <laughs> well, you know, it feels accurate because part. I mean, and I say this as somebody who's you know, you know, approaching that number, but like that is be fair. I mean, this is. I mean, this is you know, and look, it's not World War One. I'm not going to make it like World War One, but World War One. You know, a bunch of old people just decided to kill a bunch of young people. Mm-hmm. Like it, you know, was it was 20,000 deaths in the first five minutes of the psalm or something. It's just like waves of young people. Because hmm. um, it's like, well, what the hell? We get tons of young people. So why don't we just use some of them? And this is just the same. It's like, well, what, what are schools really for? Well, they're really for the teachers unions. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, then we should do whatever they want. And meanwhile, the kids are like, well, I guess, I guess it doesn't matter what I get, what I learn in school. I guess it really doesn't matter. So I, I mean, I'm going to rant now, but I mean, that, that to me is the only thing I'm worried about. And I suspect that the ultimate, the ultimate um, bill will come due and a lot of these old people will be uh, shocked to discover that, you know, their Alzheimer's meds uh, are not going to be subsidized by young people's taxpayers. This reminds me about that you wrote I what I think is the best piece of satire in the entire uh, Trump era, which is impossible for so many people to do for oh, a million reasons. But that would be me. Bigly. Bigly. It's, oh, it's brilliant. It's, it is a brilliant piece of satire. Um, and if people don't have it, you, I mean, you should get it. It's a great gift. Um, and it's, it's great for yourself, too. Can you tell us about sort of how you approach like Trump is impo- SNL has sort of infamously struggled to deal with the, the Trump era and they just cannot mock Trump very well because he's so kind of funny if you are able to to laugh. Um, but Big Lee uh, took, in, took Trump's speeches, put them in, in stanza form, um, and is an amazing sort of result. Can you talk about how oh, yeah. you, you, you sort of approached that project? Well, I mean, it was really suggested to me. I mean, I didn't come up with it. It was suggested to me, and then I thought, oh, that sounds crazy. I don't know, does that really work? And then you start to read them, and you think, Kind of does, right? I mean, look for better or for worse. I mean, I, I, you know, full disclosure. I don't think I need to tell this to people. I'm a federalist, and I mean, um, they already know if they know who I am. I was not. I was not a fan of the previous president, right? But he still won, fair and square. That seemed to be. A, that's a hard thing for everybody to accept when they lose. It turns out that you, it was fair and square. You lost. So this, you know, and the reasons why you lost. But he won, and he. You know, there's a weird, my theory about politics is that, like, if you want to become president of the United States, here, the only thing you have to do is you have to act more like a normal human being, even if it's only for 10 seconds, than your opponent. <laughs> and so this guy who lives in a, like a golden tower on a, with a golden toilet, who spends an hour and a half every morning doing his hair and makeup, he actually seemed to most Americans to be more normal than his opponent. Um, and that, I think, is not an indictment of him. It's an indictment of his opponent, right? 
I mean, she seemed weird right. and he seemed like, well, I get it. He's just a billionaire and weird, but all billionaires. Right. So, so you have to start from him with him from a position of respect. You have to under, it's really hard to be president to run. Even, even if you think you're going to lose and everybody says, oh, he thought he's going to lose. It's still a hard thing to do. And it's hard to like, I couldn't do it. Um, uh, and so you have to, you, you have to begin everything from an understanding that it took some skill, but even it's raw cunning to get where you are. And, um, and so that was so, and, and to look back and to say, okay, well, he, he does have a certain way of speaking that has been consistent forever. And it is sort of interesting. And you, you, I mean, it's not like you have to decide you like him. It's, you just have to decide that you're not trying, I'm not trying to prove that he's terrible or he's evil or he's dumb. I'm just trying to prove that like a lot of people, you can make fun of him. He's kind of funny and he's got quirks like everybody, you know? Um, and so when you sort of rearrange it, you start thinking, okay, what did he really mean? He kind of he spoke like that too, like a rapper, you know, what does he really mean? And then you sort of arrange it into the stanzas. And then uh, no, I rule was that you could never go back. You could never rearrange or anything. It had to be exactly as he said it. Uh, and then if you sort of break it down, it looks pretty good. And so some people, the problem was that some, I mean, some people really got it. So like I, even um, like John Podora said to me, he said, oh, this has nothing to do with Trump. You've written a brilliant parody of modern poetry. That it, the reason it looks like poetry, modern poetry, uh, isn't because Trump is a poet. It's because modern poetry sucks. Yes. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty good, right? You're yep. Okay, that's fair. Um, but the, but there's a perfect example of the problem with the culture, right? So uh, the, the half the people who hated Trump read the book, saw the book, read a book and said, uh, I hate this book. Uh, it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's poking fun at somebody who we should, you know, he should be impeached and imprisoned and I don't know, hung from the rafters. Um, the, the, I love this, the, the New Yorker review, which is one of my favorite yes. bad reviews ever gotten, yes. uh, accused me of being guilty of something they call jocular sanctioning, <laughs> which I don't even know what that means. I think it means that you're, you're poking fun at somebody. Uh, and by poking fun at somebody, you're basically saying they're okay. Mm -hmm. So you can't make jokes about Trump because that basically says he's okay. You can't make jokes um, about anybody that's <laughs> who is bad yeah, in that. Yeah, which, right. by the way, mocking people who are bad is one of the best ways to sort of deflate. Oh yeah, but <laughs> yeah. And then people on the right said, um, "You can't make fun of Trump because he's um, making America great, yes. and he's a great man, and nothing he does is ever." ever to, is ever to be questioned so i i i pissed off the people who love trump and i pissed off the people who hate trump and as a result nobody bought the book really because who, who's gonna buy it like people who think mm -hmm. ah, that's kind of funny no one so um yeah i didn't but I, I way i put it this way i said the, the book did not cause me any tax trouble <laughs> That's a beautiful euphemism. Well, one <laughs> yeah. thing that I loved is that you also you annotated it. And to the Pedoritz point, it, it, it's it, it's hilarious. But you have these um, annotations that sort of analyze Trump through the lens of a poetry critic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess what I was trying to do there was like show that you I mean, first of all, that all those that stuff is dumb. Right. Um, but also. You know, there. <laughs> If you believe that, I mean, what is it? People said uh, democracy is in trouble. We don't have a democracy. All the democracy stuff is crazy. If you believe that, you're insane. Because this guy is just a flawed person like anybody else. And he's going to, you know, he doesn't even really seem to enjoy the job. And he's never above 40% popular. I mean, look, this is just a president who's struggling. And and he's got a colorful history and a colorful past and a colorful present. And um, 
if, if you're if you're not able if everything is dire and absolutely extreme and a high wire act, just even the idea of like, you know, you read the New York Times, read like any cultural criticism, going to the grocery store, uh, whatever those things are that are, oh, I, I see that this is actually fraught. This thing I would do is fraught with all sorts of racial <laughs> class and climate implications. Then, then you're just never going to get it. You're just never going to, I don't know how you, I don't know how they get through the day. Um, and so that was part of that was the idea of like, well, what if we had, what if there was an academic who had chosen this, this, this person and his work, his spoken work um, to, to, to critique, I mean, not in a criticism, but to explain, to explicate for students of the future, um, which I just thought was kind of a funny idea. Uh, but, but I'm surprised sometimes how, <laughs> I mean, this is the only partisan thing I'll say It's like, People on the right in general tend to always get the joke. They may not think it's funny, but they get it. Yeah. Uh, people on the left, like they, they are literally sometimes do not understand why something's funny. Well, they've been like, I don't get it. So I don't. Why comedy. is that funny? <laughs> they, I mean, on the right, you sort of have to take your lumps every time you turn the TV on. But on the left, they right. really don't. <laughs> No, they really don't. Like, um, it was, I should just bring him up again. One of the, uh, uh, John Pedoritz once said this thing to me, and he just, it was off the cuff, but it was brilliant. Um, he said, the thing is that if you're a conservative, you have to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. And if you're liberal, you don't. Mm-hmm. You just don't have to ever speak conservative. Um, this is a good point. Yeah, and I think it's really true. And, and as a result, it makes, I think, conservatives a little bit more nimble, a little bit more um, uh, um open to, to stuff and a little bit more um, able to listen. The, the downside for conservatives, I think, is that most conservative debates and arguments you see are about what, if they're arguing with somebody who's liberal, like, I know what you really think. I know what this really means, that what you're saying. And so sometimes you, people on the right will tie themselves up into knots rhetorically when they're arguing with somebody from the left. Um, and Milton Friedman said, um, to drop another name, but Milton Friedman said to me, uh, he said, like, he, early on in his career, like, he decided it would make his life easier if he just assumed that everybody he was debating with was debating in good faith, meaning they really meant exactly what they said. And you just take them at face value. You don't try to figure out what the a secret agenda is or what, their, what the next point's going to be. You just accept the point by point from face value as in good faith. Um, and he said, first of all, he won many more arguments, but also he just had more time in the day. He didn't have to worry about it. It was, it was a lot less stress. He, in, he entered into these debates more happily because he didn't have to worry about, you know, anything else. And I think that would be a good thing for us all to do. I'm really I think curious. we'd win more arguments. There, there's something so interesting and it feels because I'm one of the more like existentially uh, concerned conservatives, it seems almost like attention, but maybe it's not. And maybe you can um, say why in this, if we're talking about postmodernism and what we see in poetry, there's really an, I think an attack on the institution of beauty um, on what beauty is and and why we should value it and why our culture should value it. Um, And this sense that, you know, everything will, will be fine. Like the apocalypse is not imminent. Um, And of course I think that's a good argument. Um, And I think I'm probably too apocalyptic and hyperbolic about some of this stuff, but does it worry you that some of this seems to be, especially you know the the postmodernism and the fruits of postmodernism some of it does seem to be an attack on um some very foundational values and you're optimistic that really things will um kind of iron out ultimately yeah i mean i think these are top layer arguments 
that um, that the advocates of beauty will win mm. because people do not change. They still like pretty sunsets. Mm. They still like things that are beautiful. They still they still like you know romance, right? They still like that. I mean, the number one, all the biggest bestsellers in the, are always like American history things or historical stuff. Um, Yellowstone is is like a new western, like it's just set in, in modern day, but it's basically on the high plains, and you know, um, it's not conservative. It just is just it's kind of pretty, pretty to look at too. Right. Um, all that stuff. It's like I I, I think that the, the the popular culture and in, I think culture in general tends. I mean, the audience is there and the viewers are there, and even the critical response is there. Um, we just have to do it. I think conservatives and certainly people on the right in the, in the culture wars spend way too much time arguing and fighting and bitterly debating on Twitter about this or that with their, with their counterparts on the left. And that is the, that is the trick of the left is to get you to sort of enter into these ridiculous academic, hypothetical, useless arguments (laughs) that don't matter that that nobody cares about. Um, And to keep that, which keeps you from creating. And that's the problem. Like, it, it's like Michelangelo said, you criticize by creating, do it. Don't wait. Don't get involved. Don't argue hypothetically or intellectually at some level about what is good or what is not, or what, what someone else is doing. I mean, if, if, if a, th- a third of the young conservatives writing um, culture opinion pieces just stopped and instead wrote movies and plays and television and novels, uh, Everything would be so much better. I mean, I think they're going to do it anyway. They may not know that they're conservative, but they're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but that—that that is how we. That's how we. You know, we—we—that's how we reclaim the culture. People say, well, "How do you get the culture back?" That's how you do it. You—you—you you, you create it. You write. You—you you, you contribute to it. Instead of contributing to culture criticism, which has always been fringe, uh, you actually make a thing. You do a thing. You know. I mean, how many? I have like you know. We all know. Like if you're in the conservative, whatever atmosphere you end up meeting a lot of rich guys mostly guys and and, and really rich and they'll say oh, wait, we gotta do take the culture back it's like, yes. okay well you're rich started and you know make a movie make a network you, you can do that you have enough money Let's do it not like uh, uh i mean look god bless tucker carlson he's great he's a great broadcaster i disagree with him on tons of stuff but i uh, he's really talented and uh and the show is great and he and i when i agree with him i'm standing up and applauding um but getting if you have a, a work of art or a piece of culture, getting it, getting Tucker to talk about it is not the, the, the goal. The goal is to get um, Stephen Colbert to talk about it, the other side to talk about it, because mm-hmm. that's that's how you get, get the culture back. And the only way to do that is to make something great. Just make mm-hmm. it great. That's all. <laughs> that's easy. Just do a great write a great book. Mm-hmm. But it's within our purview. It's like I think conservatives have like taken this pill and. Or, or digested this f- falsehood that that creative people are all Marxists or creative uh, you, you have to be a certain way to be allowed to get permission to make a movie or a TV show and that is simply not the case do not wait for permission hmm. go and do it and if you want to join the the conversation on issues like this, and if you're a college student, it's totally free. You can go to ricochet.com slash college. Rob, I think you just gave me a dose of optimism that uh, was really needed. <laughs> Good. Uh, no, more, no, no more gloomy, glum young people. That's my rule. That's go good. out and 
get outside and if they don't want to open the bars, open your own. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, again, if, if you want to join the conversation, ricochet.com slash college. It is yes, please. for students. Um, and if you are not yet a Ricochet member, make sure to go to ricochet.com as well. They are our wonderful podcast hosts. And Rob Long is the founder. Thank you so much for your time today, Rob. Happy to be here. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the brain.